All right, friends. Well, good morning and welcome into our worship service. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at FBC. And let me just say, wherever you are, however you're tuning in, I'm glad uh, that you're part of our morning and here uh, today. Uh, what we've been doing over the course of the summer is studying the Psalms. We've been preaching through the Psalms one at a time, one per Sunday. Uh, we've called our series Learning to Pray because the Psalms in the Old Testament, uh, some have referred to as the hymnal of the Bible, some have referred to them as the prayer book of the Bible. So essentially there are these, these songs or these prayers that we've seen uh, from the people of God throughout history that, that help us learn to pray, that give us language and words to express our hearts before God and learn how to connect with him more fully. And so uh, that's what we've been diving into this summer. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 84. And so if you have a Bible, you can join me there. Uh, we're going to start with a word of prayer, though, before we jump in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege it is to know you and to be able to uh, draw close to you. Thank you for the gift of your word that you reveal yourself, you've made yourself known. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word together this morning, you would teach us, you would uh, illuminate our hearts, that we might see who you are, that we would love you more, that we would be uh, more and more like you, that you'd shape our hearts and, and fashion us and, and direct us so that we uh, would love you and love people well. God, would you use this time in your word that we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, the psalm that we'll be in this morning is Psalm 84, so you can join us there now. Uh, John Piper, a pastor, author, starts uh, one of his books with this provocative question. He asks this, would you be happy in heaven if Christ were not there? Again, he says, would you be happy in heaven if Christ were not there? And he goes on to explain this in the book. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? In other words, would you be satisfied to have the kingdom of God and live in the kingdom of God with all its fullness, except without the king himself. See, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is Lord. He is our authority. He is uh, the one that we seek to obey in all things. And we as Christians believe that Jesus is Savior. He has rescued us from sin and death. And so our hearts are grateful for what he has done for us. But is Jesus, our treasure. Is he our treasure? Do we desire him and pursue him and have a longing to know God himself? Or are we concerned about what God can do for us? We often find the answer to this question uh, when we look at our prayer life. 
or, or the lack of a prayer life. It tells us a lot about what we long for and desire in our hearts. And so Psalm 84 is going to help us explore this together. Would you look at how it starts with me? We'll start to unpack it. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So you see right away that Psalm 84 is talking about the house of God. Verse 1 talks about the dwelling place of God. Verse 2, the, the courts of the Lord. Verse Three speaks of God's altar. Verse four says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. And so all this language of house and courts uh, points us to the Old Testament temple. For the Jews, the temple in the Old Testament was seen as the dwelling place of God. The temple was where God's presence was to be found, where they could go and meet with God. And so the psalmist is expressing this desire to go to the temple and to be where God is. And you notice in the text that this desire is quite strong, right? Leaping off the page is this sense of, of longing and this sense of desire. Uh, the language of the psalm, it sounds almost like love poetry, almost like, like a teenager with their first crush. I mean, again, look at the text. Look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Verse 2, my soul yearns, even faints for you. My heart and my flesh cries out to you, Lord. Verse 3, even sparrows and swallows these birds make a home near you. How much more than do I desire to be close to you? It's powerful language. You know, philosopher James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love, where he talks about what ultimately defines us as human beings. And he makes the case that at the deepest level, we are not defined by what we know, and we're not defined by even what we do, but we're most defined by what we love. He says you can learn the most about a person by figuring out what they desire, what they see as good and beautiful, what they hold in their hearts as a picture of the good life, again, what they love. And so he, he writes this, being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it's a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. And so you see, the author of Psalm 84 is demonstrating this reality. The object of their desire is God himself. They love God. They long to be in God. They say the good, to be with God, they say the good life 
is described and known by being with God and in his presence. So it's not just about information about God, although of course we would say that that right ideas and doctrine and beliefs are important and necessary, but it's not just that. It's a desire, a longing for a love for God. The psalm continues in verse 5. It takes a bit of a shift. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. So here you see the language now in verse 5 and on start to shift a little bit in the psalm. The psalmist is not talking about being in the temple with God, but is talking about being on the way to the temple to worship God. Verse 5, you notice, speaks of someone whose heart is set on pilgrimage, on journeying to the temple. Verse 6 talks about passing through the valley of Baca. And here uh, we're not sure of the area or the region that is referenced by this valley, but it carries the idea of, again, being on the way to Jerusalem. And as one would head towards Jerusalem, the the dryness of the desert region would be replaced by what springs and pools and life. Verse 7, again, on the way, they go from strength to strength. So we are strengthened by God as we go to appear before him in Zion or in Jerusalem. So I know it's a little foreign for us now, but as last week we talked about, pilgrims would travel up to the city of Jerusalem uh, for major feasts and celebrations in the Old Testament to worship at the temple. And so it's a similar idea here in, in this text. While we're on the way, God is our strength. Cry out to him to hear our prayers. And then after this sort of pilgrimage middle section of the psalm, it kind of gets back to where the psalm began. Look at verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, if you were a church kid in the late 90s or early 2000s, or or an adult for that matter, in the early 2000s or late 90s, maybe you remember the song that comes from this passage. The Better Is One Day song. Maybe it's already coming on uh, in your mind right now. Better is one day in your courts. There's a reason I'm not on the band, the worship team. Better is one day in your house. Everybody? Everybody, okay, so if, if you were in church, you remember the song, it's catchy, kind of sticks in your head. If you weren't in church back then and you don't know the song and you're like, what in the world is the pastor talking about? Don't worry, it's not a big deal. Uh, but you see in the psalm, it's back to the idea that we started with of being in the temple, being in the house of God, and it's better there in God's presence than anywhere else. Right, what does the author say? He says, I would rather have, verse 10, one day in the presence of God, one day in the courts of God, than a thousand elsewhere. 
powerful language. This is intense. He's saying it's not just like a one to two comparison. Like I'd rather have one day in the presence of God than two days elsewhere. Or, or one day here than, okay, a week or ten days elsewhere. Or I'd rather have one day here than a couple months elsewhere. No, I'd rather have one day in the house of God than a thousand elsewhere. It's almost as if he's saying that there's no comparison. Being in the presence of God is more valuable than anything else. As verse 10 continues, he kind of makes another comparison. You see, he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement here about what this word doorkeeper is referring to. Some think it could refer to uh, a beggar at the door. So I'd rather be a beggar, kind of on the outside looking in, but close to peer in to the presence of God. I'd rather have that than all the rights and privileges of dwelling in the tents and have a full life of abundance elsewhere apart from God. But it's also possible that the term doorkeeper refers to the priests who had the responsibility to, to guard the temple gates or the doors from impurity. And so they were not quite in the presence of God, but on the outskirts protecting it. Either way, the idea is clear. For the author of Psalm 84, I would rather be on the fringe. I'd rather be peering in. I'd rather be uh, leaning close, just trying to catch a glimpse of God than I would have the full comfort and privilege of life apart from God. The presence of God and being in the presence of God is an unparalleled privilege he explains why in verse 11. For the Lord, it says, is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives light like the sun and warmth and heat like the sun and guidance like the sun. The Lord protects like a shield. It says he blesses us. He withholds no good thing from his people. He is for us. Now, there's a lot here, and we can't plunge into every phrase and detail this morning, but you see uh, the main thrust of the psalm, that it starts and ends with this longing to be in God's presence. Verse 1 and 2 is there, and it comes back to it in verse 10. Longing to be in the presence of God. And this is not just some a strange thing here in Psalm 84. Like, wow, the author of Psalm 84 is really getting carried away. I mean, sure, God is special here, but someone needs to talk to this guy about a little bit of moderation. Now we see this as a repeated theme throughout Scripture. Think about the words of Psalm 73. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's nothing I desire besides you. God, you are my strength. You are my portion. You are what I need. Or we think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying compared to knowing Jesus and being with God, everything else amounts to, to garbage, to, to waste. There's nothing that compares to the privilege of knowing Christ. 
And so friends, throughout the Bible we see that this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Not only is Jesus our Lord, and so we obey him and do what he says, and not only is Jesus our Savior, and we're grateful for what he's done for us on the cross and saving us from sin, but Jesus is our treasure. We are to seek him, to pursue him, to treasure and value him above all else. And that's what Psalm 84 is getting at. Which, by way of application, then, to our lives, this should cause us to reflect and think about, do I see this attitude in my own heart? Do I see the posture of Psalm 84 and this longing to be in the presence of God reflected in my life? I think often we don't feel this or experience this as we should. And it's not just a, an emotional thing. Like, do I feel like emotionally connected with God? That, that's part of it. But as we look at the uh, entirety of our lives, do our hearts and our lives, are they all aimed at knowing God, pointed at serving God, directed towards knowing Him more fully? And I think if, if we're not there and we realize, wow, Lord, I, I don't know if I desire you in this way. I don't know if I love you in this way. We should, we should want to ask the question, why? Why not? What do we love and pursue more than God himself? What do we value or treasure more than God himself? Perhaps it's ourselves Perhaps it's our reputation. Perhaps it's our comfort. Perhaps it's the opinion of others. We have many idols that can take the place of God in our hearts. And so the answer here, if we realize that that is true, you know what, I don't think I have a Psalm 84 heart. I don't think I'm longing for the presence of God. I think if that's the case, the answer is not, well, I just need to buckle down and try harder and just be a better Christian get more serious and try really hard. That could be part of it. Effort and obedience and taking steps is, is part of it, but I think we also need a different kind of answer. It's not just do more and try harder. We need to slow down and spend time with God so that we, we see his beauty and glory. Our hearts need to be captivated by the beauty and glory of God. Our hearts need to be captivated by the beauty and glory of Jesus. And that's why we do church the way we do church. That's why we sing songs about Jesus and we seek to make much of him. That's why we spend time in his word and see how it points us to him because that's what our hearts most desperately need, a picture of God in all his glory. And he'll draw us to him and help us celebrate who he is. And friends, you know, one of the ways that we do this is we experience this in prayer in our life as a church together, but also in, in private. We spend time with God in prayer. Now, there, there's a little bit more we have to unpack from the psalm in order to understand exactly what's going on here. Uh, we need to think about how the presence of God was experienced in the Old Testament. And as we said before, it was primarily through the temple. Again, we saw this throughout the psalm. Verse 1 talks about the dwelling place of God. That's where God is. It talks about uh, verse 2, the courts of the Lord. Verse 3, the altar 
of God is mentioned. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verses 5 through 7 speak about uh, being uh, on the way to Jerusalem, this pilgrimage to worship at the temple. Verse 10 talks about, again, the courts of God and, and the house of God. And so you say over and over again, he's talking about going to the temple because that's where God is. And I know for some of us that seems a little strange, again, going overboard about a building. Like, why, why are they getting so carried away about going to a building? Although maybe, maybe in this season we can relate a little bit more. Some of us wanting to be back in the church building, wanting to worship together in this space. Maybe we can relate with this more than usual. But still, for us in the modern world, uh, that seems a little bit uh, strange. But we have to understand from an Old Testament mindset what's going on here. See, in the ancient Near East, a temple was where a deity would dwell. It was where their presence was to be expressed and experienced. It was sort of the, the control room uh, for the, that deity to, to rule over their kingdom. And so for the Jews, uh, the temple of God was the place of worship and being in God's presence and where he ruled over all things. And it was considered an immense privilege to be and remain in the presence of God. It was, it was no small thing. And just a casual stroll through the Old Testament, you'll see all of the rituals and the barriers and the, the sacrificial system and the laws about cleanliness and all these things that were intended to communicate how holy and special God was, and how God's space, we don't just waltz in there casually with our flip-flops on and our basketball shorts like we would stroll into the gas station to pick up a, a soda and a stick of beef jerky on a road trip. Now, all these rituals and barriers were to communicate to the people that the presence of God is special. It demands our, our reverence and our awe. I mean, this was a place where heaven and earth overlapped, where God himself dwelled. And so Psalm 84, one commentator put it this way. The whole point of Psalm 84, he said, is it aims to open eyes and hearts to the staggering privilege of being a welcome guest in God's own house. And now, again, this isn't some like obscure Old Testament theme, like the temple. Uh, there is a theme of the temple that runs throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. And so the Bible begins with a temple of sorts, the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 1 and 2, where God dwelled with Adam and Eve, where God dwelled with humanity. Uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project explains it this way. Uh, after sin entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3, he said, This resulted in humanity's exile from God's presence and estrangement from one another and from creation itself. But in the biblical story, God isn't giving up on humanity. He chooses one family out of the nations and eventually comes to take up residence in their midst. First in a mobile temple structure called the tabernacle, and later in the temple of Jerusalem. And these spaces were designed as micro-Edens. And the priests who worked inside were symbolic representatives of Adam and Eve. And so the temple was a sacred, 
reenactment of humanity's return to the garden, to live together with God in peace. In this way, the temple was a prophetic symbol that pointed forward to the day when not just a select few priests, but everyone could enter into the divine presence in a renewed creation. And so you see what he's saying? That the temple in the Old Testament served a very important function. Yes, it was the dwelling place of God, but it was also a signpost that pointed back to the Garden of Eden and perfect communion between God and people. And the temple pointed us forward to God's presence that would expand beyond the temple and into all of creation one day. And so, for an Old Testament Jew, the temple was central to their life because it was the dwelling place of God. It was where God's presence was to be experienced, and it had all this profound meaning and symbolism. It was telling a story about God and humanity, where we've been and where we are going. And so, okay, you might be saying, okay, that's interesting, I suppose. Uh, but what does that have to do with us today? Because we don't live in the Old Testament and we don't go to a temple to worship God. And you're right. Things look very different nowadays in terms of how we engage with God. We don't go to a temple. We don't uh, offer sacrifices. We don't think that God dwells in a, a building because things radically changed when Jesus came. And they radically changed in two big ways. And the first is this. Jesus himself claimed to be the temple to which all previous temples pointed. He claimed to be himself the temple, the ultimate temple. As Jesus walked and talked, he was the presence of God on earth, God himself dwelling among us. In John chapter 2, he refers to himself and his body as the temple, where he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. But it says there he's speaking of his body. He says, I am the temple. And then he says, he has the authority on earth to forgive sins and to cleanse people and give us life and access to God. All of these things that would be functions of the temple, Jesus now says, I fulfill all of those things. So when Jesus came, he claimed to be the new temple. And this professor, Ryan Lister, puts it this way. He says, The presence of God once enjoyed in a measure by the patriarchs and Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai is now manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And like the presence of Yahweh in the Old Testament, Christ comes now to his people to work salvation and restore to them the covenant blessings. And so we today no longer have a temple like in the Old Testament because Jesus is what we have. Jesus claimed to be a new temple for us. And the second big shift here in the New Testament and in our experience of God today is that now the people of God, not, not a physical building, but the people of God are together a temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, put it this way, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So, so you, as the people of God, 
like living stones are being built together to be a, a household or a temple where God dwells. Or you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 or elsewhere where it talks about how the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So now the presence of God is found within believers and the, the gathered collection of believers known as the church. Mark Sayers, author, puts it this way. He says, Now the people of God will become a living temple filled with the presence of God, he's saying. Each of them a mini temple filled with his spirit who through living in his presence spread his presence throughout the world. So, so no longer do we have to go to the temple to worship God. God now dwells within us, within each believer and within the church collectively gathered together. We together are the place where God dwells. And this points us to an incredible privilege and a massive shift in understanding how to relate with God. The presence of God was in the temple in the Old Testament and that was primarily where you would encounter him. But now, because of the work of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit, God's presence is within each believer and the church gathered together. And so when we think about that, we can come to Psalm 84 and say some things are the same and some things are different, right? Some things are the same that we should have the same desire for God, the same longing to commune with God and be in, in his presence and draw near to him. That, that longing, that desire should be the same in our hearts today. We long for that. But things also look different because we don't go to the temple to experience God. Now by the uh, indwelling Holy Spirit, we can experience the presence of God wherever we are. And especially as we gather together as a church body. And so let's just think about what this means then for our prayer life. In prayer, now, because of the work of Jesus, we can come into the presence of God. We can have communion with God, fellowship with Him, engage with Him in prayer wherever we are because of the presence of the Spirit. And perhaps the best way to illustrate this is like a, a human relationship. If you, if you think about how a human relationship grows or how you enjoy another person, whether it's a, a friend or a spouse or a child or, or a parent, you enjoy them by spending time with them, by listening to them, by talking to them and sharing your heart with them, by sitting quietly together, by making memories together. And so it is with God. And so I want us to see that, again, prayer is, is not just bringing a list of requests to God. And it's not just confessing sins to God, although it's both of those things. Prayer is about enjoying the presence of God. It's about enjoying God as a father, as a, as a friend, as our Savior. And I think sometimes our life is so fast-paced, so rushed, that we don't always slow down to enjoy God in this way. We don't always sit and listen 
We don't always open up God's word. And that's the thing. I'm not just talking about some kind of like mystical, clear your mind and just sit quietly out in the woods. I'm talking about allow the word of God to guide and direct you. Allow God to speak to you through his word. And then, yes, sit quietly and reflect on what that means for your life, what that means about what he's saying to you. And the good news about all this is that we don't have to conjure up the presence of God. We don't have to get really worked up as if we can control how God appears and how his presence come to, comes to us. The good news is that God is, is present by his spirit through the work of Jesus in our lives. And so we, we don't have to try and like work really hard to make him show up. He is there with us. And so we can simply come before him, hear his word, sit with him, and engage. And friends, the last thing I want to make clear is that this communion with God, enjoying the privilege of being in God's presence is only possible through the work of Jesus. Right? The gospel tells us that because of Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins, cleansed, because he died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. There'd be no condemnation for us. And in fact, we could be reconciled to God. So all this access, all this uh, enjoying God in prayer comes not by our own work or effort, but only through the work of Jesus. And so I encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never received the gift of forgiveness and salvation, God invites you to come to him, to put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as Christians, we have a chance to simply remember that as a church family this morning. We're about to take communion together, which I know is a bit hard to do since we're not together. We're all scattered in different homes, but we're going to remember the work of Jesus together at the same moment. So wherever you are, if you want to grab the elements that you have, just something to represent the, the bread, a cracker, uh, and then something to represent the cup or the, the blood of Jesus, uh, we're going to take this morning. And communion is an opportunity for Christians to remember the work of Jesus on our behalf, his death on a cross, his shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's this powerful tangible reminder of the, again, experience of life with God that we now get to enjoy. And think of the idea of communion. Coming to, typically we come to a table and we take food, bread, and wine. It, it, it symbolizes practically a meal that we get to sit down at the table of God and enjoy him and his presence together as his forgiven, redeemed people. So communion is an expression of this relationship we now enjoy with God. If, if you're listening in and you're, you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I encourage you just to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. Consider making that decision to follow Jesus and respond to him. But communion is a time especially for, uh, or specifically for believers. And so I'm going to pray for us in just one moment and then we're going to take the elements. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we remember you uh, this morning. We thank you for your death on the cross, your shed blood for us, that it's only through your work that we can be 
forgiven, reconciled to you. Thank you for saving us. And Jesus, thank you for being the fulfillment of all the things and symbols that the Old Testament held and everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to we now find fulfilled in you, your life, death, and resurrection. So thank you for what you've done, Jesus. Pray that you would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us, help us seek and desire you above all else. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.